My guest today is a primatologist doing some incredible and interesting studies on chimpanzees. Please welcome Dr. Zareen Machanda. Serene, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. All How right. are you doing? I'm doing fine, doing fine. Great. Thank you for asking me, and thank you for coming on to this podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Great, good. Well, let's jump right into this. What do you do? I am a primatologist. So that's a biologist, a wildlife biologist who studies primates. I think most of your listeners will probably know the most famous primatologist is Jane Goodall. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do. Nice. All right. Now, when did you get interested mm -hmm. in science and really primatology? It actually goes back a long time. So mm -hmm. I, I think I was always interested in science. My mom and dad really cultivated that. But I have a very distinct memory of being four or five years old. And I saw a documentary that I don't know the name of, but it was about, or at least part of the documentary was about sending chimpanzees to space as part of, you know, like back in the day as part of the program. Right. And they interviewed Jane Goodall and underneath her name, it said primatologist and interviewed John Glenn and under his name, it said astronaut. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that seems cool. So I, this is how old I am. I went to our world book encyclopedia, which we had at the house. Right. <laughs> And I looked up both of those things and I thought, wow, wow, those sound really cool, but astronaut sounds really cool. And so I remember having a conversation shortly thereafter with my mom saying something about being an astronaut veterinarian because there are chimps living in space and someone needed to go take care of them. Mm. So it's not a job. I wish it will one day <laughs> probably be a job, but it's not a job, but it kind of in my head, you know, I think it it put together this like, you know, I love animals. These chip things sound pretty cool. Going to space sounds even cooler. Mm -hmm. I figured out it wasn't a job pretty, pretty <laughs> quickly. And I think it focused me towards like, okay, I really love that animal piece. And like, and I, I had always loved animals, but I really wanted to do something maybe more exotic. So I, I really thought, okay, I want to be a wildlife veterinarian. And I think in my, as for childhood, that was about as close as I was going to get to being an astronaut veterinarian. And then it wasn't really until college that I started doing research as part of my biology degree and that I kind of flipped from wanting to be a veterinarian to actually wanting to do that pure science and really wanting to go observe animals in the wild. So it really wasn't until college that I kind of had moved away from that veterinarian thing and realized that as someone who loved animals, that there are lots of different kinds of jobs and that I could maybe pursue a PhD and, and actually study these animals and that, oh my gosh, someone could would pay me to go study them. Right, perfect. Something that you love and someone's gonna pay you for it even better, yeah. all right. So. I, I mean, it's the dream, right? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now you are at the Kabali Chimpanzee Project and yeah, so can you talk Kibali a little bit about that? Project. Yeah. Um, I'm one of the co-directors. So it was started in the project itself was started in 1987 by my PhD advisor, Richard Rangham. 
And now I direct it with Martin Muller and Melissa Emery Thompson, who are at University of New Mexico. So it's a real team project. So a lot of the work that we do is really collaborative. So I think one thing, if you want to be a scientist, you really have to like have some good teamwork skills because mm -hmm. almost all science is collaborative. Yeah, so we started in 1987. Um, it's in southwestern Uganda. We study the Kanyawara community of chimpanzees. So it's kind of one big extended family group that lives in the northwest kind of quadrant of Kibali National Park. And one of the most amazing, certainly primate habitats on earth, I don't know if you've been to a tropical rainforest, but you know, it is everything you imagine. Like it's a biologist's dream. I mean, mm. every single day you see something new. And there are just the density of wildlife that's there. It's just incredible. I mean, I, I kind of joke that like, if you throw a rock up in the air in Kibali, you're gonna hit a monkey because it's just such a incredibly dense primate habitat. Oh. And, you know, it's one of the few parks in Uganda that actually has wild chimpanzees. And if you're someone that studies chimps, you know, we all have like our different areas that we're really interested in of their behavior. But the way I describe the project is if there's something you think is really interesting about chimps, we've probably studied it, are studying it, have plans to study it. So we collect this incredible diversity of data in order to really characterize every single aspect of the lives of these chimpanzees. So you name it, we could probably study it or find a way to study that about chimps. Not everything, obviously. I mean, we're right, limited because right. they're wild animals, so we don't have physical contact with them. All of our work is non-invasive, so we don't knock them down, and you know, they're not in cages. So we're a little bit limited, but they're also an endangered species. So I sometimes, maybe it's a bit doom and gloomy, but sometimes think about the work that we do is trying to document the lives of these species of these chimps before they go. Oh, and oh. We, we're trying to get as much information as possible about them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're the closest living animal to humans on this yeah. earth. <laughs> yeah, well, we know along, of, so, yeah. along with another species named the bonobo that lives in okay. Democratic right. Republic of Congo, but they're right. one of our closest living relatives. Right. Absolutely. We shared a last common ancestor with chimpanzees six, about six million years ago. Mm. So it's a long time, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's still closer than any other animal. Right. Um, and if you ever have the opportunity to go see chimps, and for those people who have, it's a really profound experience. And it's impossible, absolutely impossible not to watch chimps and think of humans. Yeah, right. You know? And, you know, as a, as a mom, too, you know, like, I have two small kids. And I see these mother chimps with their small babies. And I think, this, you know, I know exactly what that mother is going through. <laughs> now, now, talking about that, thinking of humans when you see them, you, I know you published research on what is believed to be the first evidence of non-human animals selecting who they socialize with during aging. So can yes. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So in humans, we have this pattern of social aging that is very kind of characteristic across our species. And that is, as we age, we tend to kind of shrink our social network. But within that social network, we our bonds kind of get stronger. So we get rid of all of those okay friends and really right. focus on our strong bonds. 
So human social networks shrink with age, but humans report greater satisfaction with their social lives as they get older. And humans also actually have this, what we call a positivity bias. So they kind of see the world through rose colored glasses as they age. And there's a stereotype of like cranky old people that's actually just not true. And that humans as we age get really positive and kind of happy. And we like to think the best of the world as opposed to when we're younger. So that's the pattern. And there are various theories in psychology that this pattern has to do with the fact that we have this really well-developed sense of time. And as humans, as we get older, we actually see this looming time horizon, which is death. And that's actually kind of what's causing this shift in behavior. So I like to think of it as when you're young, you're just gaining knowledge and you're just, you know, trying to figure out the world. And so you may tolerate these friends who are not very good friends, Mm -hmm. right? But as you get older, you just don't have time for that. You just don't want that kind of nonsense in your life. And you just get rid of that and focus on the friends that you have. In psychology, it's described as this kind of understanding of time or mortality. And another way of thinking about it is it doesn't necessarily just have to do with death, but you think about high school or when you first started high school as a freshman and you're like, I just want to make all friends. And and then you think of the day you graduate high school. Are you still trying to make new friends or are you really just trying to spend time before you all go to college or before you all separate? You're going to focus on the the friends that you make, right? Right but it has to do with our understanding that something is coming to an end, Mm -hmm. whether it's your life or whether it's just a life state. Now, that's the explanation from human psychology. And so we realized that we actually have a data set from chimpanzees that tests it, hypothesis, because there's no evidence that chimpanzees have a sense of mortality. And there's no evidence that they really understand time in the same way that we do and have that really kind of rich understanding of time. You know, they could maybe understand like this might happen tomorrow or something on the order of a few hours or maybe a day or two, but nothing like we had where like, oh, in 10 years, I want to be doing this. And so they don't seem to be able to project their selves, their sense of self into the future, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, well, if our sense of time explains this shift in social behavior in humans, then chimpanzees should not show the same pattern, right? Right. We shouldn't see this increased selectivity or increased social bonds with age that we see in humans. And what we found is actually chimps show pretty much a very similar pattern to humans. So as they get older, their behavior shifts from kind of more negative, aggressive behaviors to more positive, uh, friendly behavior. Um, And then as they get older, they kind of shift from having bonds that are very one-sided, where they're really like, I want to be friends with you, but this individual is not reciprocating or wants to be friends with me, to really just focusing on the mutual bonds they have. So these bonds where there is this kind of reciprocation of affection. And I will say this is just for male chimpanzees. So in our study, we just look at males. In Mm -hmm. humans, the pattern seems to be across all people. 
Right. In chimps, we just found this in males and we haven't looked at it very clearly in females. That's an open question. Right. Um, but it does seem that we are seeing kind of the same pattern in chimps. And that means that maybe we have to reevaluate whether the pattern that we're seeing really has to do with our sense of time. And it's not explained by that. And I want to make a caveat that we didn't test it in humans. So like, you know, it's very possible that it, our sense of mortality does explain the shift in humans. But what our data show is that it, there may be something else. Okay. At least we know that's not the explanation for CHIMP. So maybe we should broaden our understanding of human aging as well. So that's interesting. I have a few questions on that. So one is you mentioned the animals showing affection, more mutual affection as they grow older to just a few friends. Can you talk about how chimpanzees show affection and also, I guess, how they show negative behavior as well? Yeah, so chimpanzees, these are males again, are kind of, to me, very, in many ways, extraordinary because they're both quite aggressive, right? Because they need to fight each other for dominance rank, right? Mm -hmm. So they're always going to, there's always some fighting during the day or some kind of dominance display that they're doing. But they also do have very strong bonds with each other. And that's often manifested or often shown by sitting next to each other and also engaging in grooming behavior. So they're sitting next to each other and like cleaning each other's fur. Um, and the way that I often like to talk about this is, so imagine in terms of proximity, at least, imagine if I followed you around without talking to you for your entire waking day. And I just took data on every, everyone you interacted with, how close you stood to them, et cetera, et cetera. The people you like more are going to be the ones you sit closest to. You know, if I had years of data on you, that would definitely come out. Um, and then I also, you know, and you probably also, the people you like most, you'd probably end up touching them more often right, than the right. people you don't like. And for chips, I think that's especially true, like with this grooming behavior, the reason that we use grooming as a metric of friendship across lots of animal studies is, you know, by sitting that close to someone, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. And, you know, I'll be a little bit crude, but, you know, you, you see these, these chimps who are lying on the ground and one chimp is grooming near their groin area. Mm. And I think... If you're going to get that close to their <laughs> testicles, you better like that individual, right? <laughs> like if you're going to, yeah. So, and I always tell students, it's like, don't let someone you don't like groom your testicles. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's a good life lesson, right? right. Um, but all joking aside, but I think you are vulnerable when you're mm -hmm. sitting in close proximity and you're in that relaxed state that grooming puts you in. Um, and so we think it is actually a really good metric of, you know, I, I don't know that I would say affection, because that might be very like a human term, a very human kind of term, but certainly affiliation. They're relaxed around these individuals. Yeah. What I mean by mutual is if I always walked up to you and you always moved away, I would say that's a very one-sided kind of relationship. Right. But if I always walked up to you and you always walk up to me, that's like a, there's something mutual growing on, going on. And if, if I groom you and you groom me back, that's mutual. Whereas if 
I just groom you, it's one-sided. Right. And so when these male chimps are young, they have these one-sided relationships. And I kind of think of it as like when your siblings, how the younger siblings always trying to like hang out with the older sibling right. and the older, that's like a one-sided one. But as these chimps get older, they're spending time with these individuals who are actually reciprocating. Oh. Wow, very interesting. And you mentioned a few times that just the males that you're doing the studies on, I know the females, they leave their family, right, mm -hmm. their group. And is that the case? Is that why? Because you're going to see less closeness and less? Yeah. I mean, there are lots of, I could go on and on about this and I won't, but it's like a whole field. <laughs> but for chimpanzees, you're right. Females leave the group when they're adolescents. The explanation is basically to avoid inbreeding. Right. One sex has to go. Mm -hmm. For chimps, it's females. And females generally just have, across the whole species, females just don't form as strong social bonds as males. Now, there are certainly females who do have strong bonds with each other, but on average, females just don't have a strong bond. So it's a little bit harder to study bonds. No. One data set that I worked with on another paper, in the same time period, we had something like 2,000 grooming events between adult males. And in that same Time period we only had 38 between adult oh. females so they're quite a bit less social right. wow. and when we find them in the home range they tend to be often alone with just their offspring so it's hard to do a study on social bonds when they're just not being very social that makes sense yep <laughs> now and i know you mentioned uganda but are you seeing the same results with these chimps in different regions if you are looking at them in different regions like western africa versus central africa for instance? I think it's an open question. So we only study this one community, of okay, chimps, but okay. I think it's an absolutely fantastic question to think about, does this result ex really explain chimps or is it really just about our chimps? And I right. think it's reasonable. You know, there are other kinds of social behavior differ from West Africa to East Africa or even within East Africa. And the more we study chimps, the more we actually figure out that one community is very different from another and mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of variation going on and a lot of you know about chimps actually a lot of it comes from Jane Goodall site which is in Tanzania and it turns out that actually our chimps can be quite a bit different from their chimps in lots of different mm -hmm. ways and I think actually that's in many ways the future of primatology is trying to understand that variation from site to site doing more comparative studies where we work together. And, and actually I've done a lot of work with that particular, you know, comparing our data with the Gombe data. So Gombe is Jane Goodall site. Okay. So we, we've done quite a few studies comparing those two communities, but I think that's the way forward. And again, I just want to stress how collaborative you have to be. Mm -hmm. None of us, at least in my field, you'll almost never see a paper with one author. It's just never going to happen. Now, talking about that, collaborating, and you mentioned Jane Goodall. It seems like someone that you look up to. Were there other people when you were younger in college or later that you've looked up to and maybe even kind of mentored you to help you get to where you are? Yeah, I actually had, I mean, I went to a wonderful high school in Toronto, which is where I grew up. And it was an all-girls school, and I think that really helped me not, I remember getting to college when I went, I went to McGill, which is in Montreal. I remember getting to college and like thinking, 
like, I just wasn't scared of answering questions. I was never afraid of putting my hand up. And I was, you know, reading about, oh, but women in science tend to be quieter, not as assertive. This is back in the 90s. And I think going to an all-girls school helped me not have any of those hangups, personally. And when I was in college, McGill didn't actually have primatology as a discipline or biological anthropology, which is kind of my umbrella discipline. So primatology is actually most often studied in anthropology departments in the United States. But I did take a lot of anthropology courses and I took a lot of biology courses and I had a mentor in the biology department who is Dr. Graham Bell, who is an evolutionary biologist. And he probably still, if I think about it, kind of scares me because he was so smart. And because he was so smart, I just wanted to work so hard to just try to converse with him. And, and then I had a mentor in the anthropology department who since passed away, Bruce Trigger. And he was an archaeologist, actually, so not really what I do. But I loved his classes. And he was, I think, one of the first people who actually told me, you're really smart and you could do this. Mm. And, you know, just getting that as a young person, like just getting that positive feedback. Huge. It's huge. It really is. And it was one who was not a primatologist, but he not only kind of gave me that confidence, but also he was so flexible. He did not study chimpanzees. He didn't study evolution, but he recognized something in me and I think he wanted to help me. And so he let me be very flexible with papers for my class. So he let me write a paper on how evolutionary theory impacted anthropological history, you know, like, (laughs) which is kind of random, but like he gave me that flexibility to explore something even outside his discipline. Yeah. And then of course my PhD advisor, Richard Wrangham is, I mean, he's my academic hero. I mean, he's just, a lot of times when you go to grad school, they'll tell you this is going to be because by the time you get your PhD, you will know more about the subject than even your PhD advisor. Mm. And that will never be true for me because Richard (laughs) is just like a a certified genius. And I'm not even sure how he did it, how he mentored me, but I feel like I am a really good scientist because of him. He taught me to be really like a great critical thinker to never take the easy way out. And this is something I do with my students. Like if I ever had gone to Richard and said, well, I have this problem. I could do it this way or I could do it this way. The answer was always him going to say, well, do it both ways Mm. and see and see what happens. And I do that to my own students now. But it was so frustrating to hear at the time, you know, like (laughs) just give, I don't want to do it both ways. That's hard. But he kind of taught me not to take the easy way out. That's great. And that's at Harvard, yeah. right? That was my PhD at Harvard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's great. That's great. Now, on your studies, you know, your latest studies were on aging, but you've also studied early development and infancy, correct? Um, yep. Can you talk about some of the things that you studied there and what you've learned? Yeah. So, like I said, we kind of study everything. Mm. So, okay. um, the stuff that we've done about like early infancy has been. Um, a little bit about like how sex differences develop. So we know that there are these sex differences among adults where males, for example, are more aggressive, but also more gregarious than, than females. 
And part of the studies of the infants really have to do with how does that kind of develop? Mm. You know, we know in humans, for example, there are pretty profound social influences on the development of gender differences. And I don't want to bring up too much of the nature nurture debate because like, I think it's much more nuanced than nature or nurture. It's obviously a combination of these two things. Um, but I will say we're, we are finding evidence in the chimps that the social lives around them that is actually affecting their development as they grow older. So things like how much aggression they're exposed to has an impact on how aggressive they are. Mm. But we also know things about their physical development. So we know when certain hormones come into play, when we're, we start to see increases in different androgen hormones like testosterone and we can kind of relate how hormonal development actually interacts or affects or correlates with behavioral development. Uh, I did one of my favorite studies of all time. We actually did a study trying to figure out when baby chimps all get their teeth. And I won't get into why that's interesting, but just trust me that it's very interesting. And we took something like 9,000 photos of baby chimps with their mouths open. Wow to see like when they get their teeth and you know we yeah it's it's, it's a lot (laughs) but things like they get their adult canine teeth about the age of 10 years old which is when males start to leave their moms and enter into the male hierarchy and when they start to kind of get their muscle they start to grow Mm. and it's when their testosterone really starts to take off and so i think all of these are kind of related to each other in in terms of them getting into the male hierarchy. So now it's interesting hearing that. And then I'm hearing it around when they're 30 is when they peak. So at what time do they start to fight for that alpha male? When does that happen? So usually we will see from about the age of 10 to 15. And this is work that one of our graduate students in New Mexico has really been focused on lately, Drew Enick. And I think what we're finding is that really between 10 and 15, the males kind of spend a lot of that adolescence, we call that adolescence or that adolescent period, dominating the adult females and practicing fighting and kind of forging some social bonds. Usually by the time they're 15, they have become socially dominant to all of the females. And that's when they really start to become or interact with the other adult males and kind of we start to see them slowly moving up in rank Mm. and they'll hit kind of like I think you mentioned peak rank you know 25 to 30 somewhere in there so this adolescent period is really interesting when they're kind of leaving mom starting to dominate the females Mm. getting their toes wet in the adult hierarchy and then usually by 15, they're pretty kind of ready to go. All right. And then the lifespan, is was that around 60? Yeah, 60 would be pretty pretty late, I would say. Somewhere, you know, about 50. 50, um, okay. Yeah, 50 to 60. And females tend to live a little bit longer, but we do have a couple of chimps that are 50. We have had maybe one or two that have gone past 60, but it's pretty unusual for okay. us. Okay, okay. And my son peeked here earlier. He loves the work that you do and wanted me to ask this question to you. So can you talk about just the chimpanzee's brain compared to our brain? And and I guess what you would call intelligence of the chimpanzee compared to humans and other animals. Yeah. 
chimpanzees are incredibly smart. They're not as smart as we are. So human brains are somewhere about 1,200 cubic centimeters, 1,200 to 1,400 cubic centimeters. A chimpanzee brain is probably about 450 cubic centimeters. Mm. So quite a bit smaller, but we're off the charts, right? Like our brains are kind of off the charts big for our body size. So of, of the primates, chimpanzees have these relatively large brains like the other apes, and they are very smart. When we're talking about chimpanzee intelligence, a lot of that work is done in captivity where you can actually do experiments and kind of test their abilities in ways that we're, we can't really do in the wild. But they are very clever. You know, they do have a what we call a theory of mind. And a way to describe that might be a theory of mind is kind of like, I know what you're thinking. So they understand the thoughts of others and they understand the motivations of others. And that's right. a really important kind of thing in, in terms of forming kind of complex social behavior, right? To understand that someone else has different motivations than you. People have done studies on them about risk assessment and do they understand that if you wait, you might get a bigger reward, stuff like that. So they're yeah. not just all impulse and all just like what's immediately in front of them. One of my favorite studies I did with Katie Slocum and Anshel and Simon Townsend, we did a study where we stuffed a snake skin. Like we took a snake skin and we stuffed it and we made it look really real. And then as chips were walking down the path, we had hidden the snake under leaves and then we just pulled it from a fishing line. So it exposed the snake to the first chimp and we saw their reaction to it. And their first reaction is just like, ah, right. <laughs> Completely right. automatic. Right. They're, what they then do is they look behind them and they see who's behind them. And if the chimp behind them is a friend or a relative, they'll give oh. an alarm call. Uh. But if it's not, they're like, eh, I'll keep going. And that's a pretty sophisticated control Very. of your vocalizations. It's intentional. I mean, it's mean, but <laughs> it's, you know, it's not nice necessarily. So they are in many ways quite sophisticated. But whether or not they are like humans, like how much they're actually really able to deceive each other or lie, I don't think so. Like I said, we don't think they have a lot of future planning. Mm. One of the things that I think really obviously sets humans apart is our language sure. and having language the way that we have language gives us a lot of abilities that are not really open to animals. For example, having a language for numbers allows us to co cooperate and do business with each other and share resources and reciprocate and trade and is that is just not going to be available to, to other animals. Right. Right. So I think language is going to end up being the most probably important thing for humans in our evolution. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is, was fake or not, but I, I think I remember seeing a video back in the day of a chimpanzee making a tool. Oh yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. so that's real. Okay. Yep. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they use tools, they make tools. You know, our chimps are not great tool makers. The mm. Gombe chimps are much better tool makers. They'll like use fishing rods to get termites, mm, um, wow. leaf sponges. They'll, they'll do, they, and so yeah, it's also sophisticated. They don't make composite tools mm -hmm. where they necessarily like put two things together to make another tool. But to be honest, I think crows can do that. So it's not a uniquely human trait. 
Um, the other thing that allow that humans do that's a little, that's different than animals. It seems to be our ability to have cumulative culture. So each generation, for example, in humans, we're not reinventing the wheel because we kind of build on our knowledge. Um, and again, I would argue that that's because we have language, right? We can literally write a book on how to do something. Right. Whereas chimps will have to start reinvent the wheel, reinvent the wheel yeah. every generation. Makes sense. Got it. All right. Now, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? Mm -hmm. So there are two answers to that question. Mm -hmm. One is a typical day here in Massachusetts when mm -hmm. college is in session. I would say I teach probably almost every day. So usually there's some sort of lecturing or interacting with students on a daily basis. My research when here, a lot of it is kind of on the computer. All of our data that we collect in the field is digitized and put into Excel spreadsheets and databases. And so a lot of my research here is kind of spent in front of my computer on Excel, crunching numbers, doing statistics. It's a lot of computer time, a lot of teaching, a lot of kind of meeting with my students and help and kind of helping them become researchers and a lot of writing. I think one of the things that people don't always necessarily think about with science is how much writing we do and how important it is to have really good writing skills. So if you don't like writing, it's actually really hard to be a scientist because that's how we communicate. In many ways, that's how our success is measured with how much, how many papers we've written. Yeah. So writing is a big part. And then obviously I go to Uganda and what a day in the life for a primatologist is like in the field is totally different. So our field site is pretty luxurious, I would say, for a field site. Um, we do have permanent structures, uh, houses, kind of concrete houses. We have electricity, not, not like we do here. I mean, you know, it's enough to charge laptops and cameras and, and have lights, but we don't have running water. So we collect rainwater and use that and boil it and filter it. But our camp is kind of located in the, kind of in the center of the chimpanzee home range. Okay. And so what happens in the morning is we often wake up probably around 4.30 or 5. You eat a quick hearty breakfast. Where we work in Uganda is actually quite chilly at night. Like I know it's on the equator, but it actually can get down to about 45 or 50 degrees really? at night. Yep. Wow. Because we're, we're about a mile above sea level and like it, it, it can get quite chilly. So, you know, you're a little bit cold. And then we hike out where the chimps have slept the night before. And that hike could be 10, 20 minutes. It could be an hour and a half. And you're hiking in the dark because the sun doesn't rise on the equator until 7 a.m. So we're often hiking in the dark through the rainforest to try to get to where the chimps have slept the night before. We try to get there by about 6.30 a.m. And then the chimps start to wake up between 6.30 and 7. One of the first tasks that we have is that we actually collect their first morning urine. And we will collect their urine and feces throughout the day because we that's actually how we get data on what's happening inside their bodies. So when I talk about like testosterone values, we get that from doing lab work on their urine. Oh, okay. And so we'll get their first morning urine. We wait for them to pee, get their urine, and then they'll come down and we follow them for the entire waking day. And that for a chimpanzee is about 12 hours. So 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. 
oftentimes we're kind of collecting you know, data that entire time. So some of our data, for example, is collected every minute. So we're recording what they're doing every single minute for 12 hours. So you're really kind of very vigilant, really focused, kind of laser focused on getting this data. We don't eat in front of the chimps. So like if you want to eat something, you have to kind of move away and get out of their line of sight. So a lot of times you don't eat a lot. It's hard work. I mean, our field site is very hilly. There's a lot of ups and downs. It's real hiking. You know, I mean, it's like hiking through the jungle with machetes. No one gives me a machete for good reason. (laughs) But it is, you know, it is that kind of like hacking. Some parts are like hacking through the jungle or walking through swamp. And then we come back at about 7 p.m. We'll start the hike back once the chimps have gone to sleep. Sometimes we'll... you know, get home between 8 and 9.30. Usually it depends. Bucket shower, shove food in your face and <laughs> go to sleep. And we do that, depends on your own schedule, but probably about four to five days a week. So long, hard, physically hard days. Best job ever. Oh, nice. I Love mean, it. <laughs> you know, like no, I, there are so few biologists who would like complain about getting to spend time in the rainforest Mm -hmm. and surrounded by everything, right? Right. All wildlife. So it is hard. You do get dirty. You get pooped on every so (laughs) often. You have to be a little bit adventurous and a little bit fearless. And, um, but what, I mean, what fun, so fun. That's awesome to see your passion for what you do. Now, I have a couple questions about that, though. One is you mentioned not eating in front of them. Is that because they might get aggressive if they see you eating? And also, if so, do you have protection if they get aggressive? We don't have protection if they get aggressive. It's not really something we're worried about. Even though they're quite a bit stronger than us, we're still taller than they are because we're standing upright and they're on fours. So I think to some extent they're habituated to human observation, but they're just a little bit like weary of, you know, they're perfect. Like it's the perfect amount of weariness. Okay. And we don't eat in front of them because we don't want chimps to associate humans with food because we don't want them to kind of come to our camp and like come to our kitchen and, and eat human food. It would be, not only would we be really upset that they ate all of our food, but it's a disease risk, right? If they kind of came into our space and were exposed to our diseases, that that's actually the leading cause of mortality for chimps is respiratory infections that they're most likely picking up from humans. Wow. Okay. Didn't know that. And then just being in the rainforest 12 hours a day, besides working with the chimps, what other cool things have you seen out there? I mean, I know there's tons of stuff out there, tons of species that you don't see anywhere else. So like what type of cool things have you seen in your career out there? Oh God. I mean, I, how, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, you know, one of the things we actually have one of the world's largest populations of forest elephants. So that's a pretty incredible thing to see. Yeah. They're pretty skittish around humans. So we don't, um, see it very often. I love everything. I mean, we have so many monkey species. I love watching the baboons. I mean, I partly love watching the other primates because they're so, in many ways, so different from the chimps. And I love that kind of being able to see a bunch of primates and compare them. I love going out into the rainforest at night and it's a completely different place. And you're, you're walking through the forest at night and you feel the bats like brush by your head. Oh, wow. you know, we have these, we have bush babies in the forest and they kind of, 
they're just like scampering around the canopy. Lots of biologists will say this, but like we have some of the most amazing birds. We have we have gray parrots. They're phenomenal. I love watching the safari ants. Mm. And, you know, when they're going, I don't know exactly what they're, I don't, I'm not an entomologist, but you'll see them moving their whole colony, like crossing the road. And you see these like soldier ants kind of creating bridges so that the other ants can crawl over them. I mean, it's just every, every, (laughs) everything is cool. You've seen it all. That's, that's great. Wow. And no, you know what? I haven't seen it all. And that's That's what's even cooler. Yeah. Yeah. Every, literally every single day you go out into that habitat and you see something new. That's awesome. Every now, single day. Being a primologist, have you, have you been to uh, Monteverde in um, Costa Rica? I have been to Costa Rica. I don't exactly remember every place that we went in Costa Rica, but okay. we were able to hike through some rainforest there. Okay, and, it's probably um, Monteverde. All right. Yeah, probably. And saw capuchin monkeys. Yeah. Um, Spider yeah. monkeys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's. I have tried to go to as many like primate habitats as possible, had a chance to go to the Amazon, which we didn't go very far into the Amazon, Um, went to rainforest in Indonesia. And I will say, having done all of that traveling, my heart still lies in African rainforest. I think they're still the nicest, most wonderful habitat on the planet. They're not humid. Whereas when I was in Indonesia, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> so, I'll, I will take my Ugandan rainforest. Oh, I hear that. All right. Now, you mentioned teamwork and writing skills. Can you talk about other skills and characteristics that you think are most important to be successful in your line of business? Yeah, actually, you know, one of the things that I don't think gets talked about a lot with science is creativity, mm-hmm. you know, and problem solving skills. For example, this project where we were taking pictures of baby chimps with their mouths open, like traditional way of doing that project across our discipline would be to wait for baby chimps to die and then get their skulls, collect their bodies, get their skulls, and then look, dissect and look at what teeth they have. And it actually was like, I think it was someone who wasn't a primatologist who we were having dinner with one day and we're describing this problem and like, oh, it'd be so great if we had this data, blah, blah. And I mean, he, you know, he was the one that said, duh, why don't you just take pictures of baby chips with their mouths open? Mm-hmm. You're like, why don't we take pictures <laughs> of baby chips with their mouths open? Bing! But, you know, like there are lots of moments like that where yeah. you have this problem that you want to solve and want to figure it out. And a standard method is just going to work. And you right. actually just have to be creative. And I think there's that aspect of science that is creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just like the person that can memorize the most facts. It is like a very creative endeavor. Yeah. And I love, I really love that about it. Like I love sitting there and trying to figure out how to answer a question. And I, I love that kind of innovation. I mean, one of the things that we do at our field site is we try to, we wanted to get body size estimates of the chimp. Mm-hmm. And we tried lots of, you know, I mean, I've tried lots of things like you try, we tried burying a scale and waiting for them to walk on top of it and see if it'll register. They walk 10 feet around it. And we found a method that people were using in seals using parallel lasers 
So wow. luckily my partner has some skills with lasers. And so we built this laser system on my dining room table and mounted it <laughs> on a camera and like, cool. Right. But I mean, I loved it. I loved sitting there and trying to do this new cool kind of science. And, you know, I think that's a really underestimated skill in our field. That's um, definitely problem solving right there. It is re- it's real problem solving. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I think other than that, curiosity is a huge thing. You really have to look at the world as there's so much you want to know about it. There are so many unanswered questions. I absolutely know a hundred percent that even 30 years from now, I will still have questions about chimps. Absolutely. I mean, there are just so many, I mean, I will never be run out of questions that I want to ask about chimps. So I think you kind of have to have that view of the world that there is so much left to learn. It's this infinite amount of stuff that's left. Right. Okay. So teamwork, writing skills, creativity, problem solving, curiosity, like it. Yeah. Okay. Now, as far as the steps that you took to get to where you are, an undergrad in science, in a science-related field, I believe you said you got your master's in the same thing, and then you got your PhD? No. Well, so I, I did undergraduate at McGill in biology and anthropology, and then I actually went straight into my PhD program, okay, but a lot sorry. of PhD programs in the U.S. are like MA PhD programs. So mm-hmm. after your first two years of graduate school, you get your master's. And then you kind of embark on this PhD. So I do have a master's, but it's it kind of part, it's like ensconced in, in the PhD. And it got you. Okay. Now, is that the typical role for people that want to get into your field and be a primatologist? I would say there, I mean, I think that is a typical way of doing things. Yep. Um, but I, I think it's also maybe more common that people would take time off undergraduate and graduate school, especially especially these days where it can be quite competitive. And what a lot of people do in that time off is actually try to get experience working in the field. And I think that's a good thing to know. You know, I, I think before you embark on a PhD or you're going to potentially be living in rainforest for, a, you know, many years, you should know that you like that, right? <laughs> right. Like you're okay with getting dirty and not having running water. And it's, it's, a, it's, I think it's getting more and more common that graduate schools are kind of looking for people who have a little bit of field work. So for a lot of students who are thinking about, like my undergrads who are kind of thinking about going into what I do or pursuing kind of primatology at least, I'll often say, hey, you know, I think maybe you might want to try to do something over the summer that might give you some field skills. Or um, I definitely encourage students as undergraduate to get involved in research during undergrad in a professor's lab. You know, I try to encourage them to look at different offerings in a bio department or whatever science department, whether it's like a semester long project, a senior thesis, even just volunteering in someone's lab. So my lab at Tufts, we have high school students working in the lab. We have freshmen, you know, all sorts of undergrads. Um, It's just, it's great to get some kind of research experience under your belt. Oh, good. Good good advice. Great advice. All right. And now I know you mentioned how you love animals and you you briefly talked about this, but can you just talk about what you love about what you do? Everything. I love everything (laughs) about what I do. 
you know, I've always really had a deep fascination about the natural world. And I think for a lot of people, science, especially high school, it can be a little bit of a drag, right? Because it's just like a lot of stuff to memorize. And like, you just have to build up this kind of base knowledge. And so what I love about what I get to do is that I, I actually get to do the process, like the act of being a scientist, not just the like studying science, I actually get to produce knowledge. And I think that's way more fun than reading a textbook. Right. And I love that a lot of my job can be outside, right? I love that it's not this rigid kind of schedule. Like I do not have what I would describe as a nine to five job. I have a very flexible kind of schedule. Like tomorrow, if I want to start work at 10, I'll start work at 10, but I might end up working till 3 a.m. So there's a flip side to that, but I love the flexibility of my job. I love that I get to travel. I absolutely love the teaching part of the job. I didn't know that I would love that part, but I love that part. And I think one of the cool things for me about research and studying chimps in particular and and working where I do in Uganda, I would say the research part of my job is kind of this really awesome, like kind of central nugget that then has kind of expanded and has sent out all of these kind of feeler things to all sorts of different kinds of activities that I get to do. So, you know, like I said, teaching, but also like the work mentoring high school students and getting to do outreach in schools around the country and doing public talks and like really doing engagement with the public, which I love. And it's, it's not something I get paid to do, but it is something that I consider as part of my career and as part of a service, right? As a scientist, I think that's one of our duties. But I also, you know, because chimps are endangered, I do I I think we're all, anyone who studies an endangered species is tasked with conserving that species. So I spent a tremendous amount of time working towards conservation. And again, it's not part of my official job description, right? It's not on the contract that I signed or anything like that, but it's a hugely important and fulfilling part of what I do. And then so much of conservation cannot be just like what's happening inside the park with the chimps, but conservation is a massive undertaking that also requires the participation and cooperation and and partnerships with local communities. So a lot of the work that I do actually involves, you know, working with local Ugandans. I am on the board of directors of a uh, education program called Kasisi Project, where we help and and do educational kind of work with 16 public primary schools around Uganda, around Kibali National Park. Oh, and so um, end up servicing or working with almost 10,000 school kids. And so honestly, if dirt, you know, and, and that work is not just like teaching kids about chimps. It is like the philosophy is like, let's make the lives of these kids as awesome as possible. Let's give them as many opportunities as we possibly can so that they grow up with opportunities that don't mean that they have to rely on cutting down the national park for their livelihoods. So that means that we try to do everything for those kids. It's not just like, let's teach them about chimps one afternoon. It's let's keep girls in school by making sure they have access to menstrual products. Mm -hmm. And so if you had told me 15 years ago while I was doing my PhD that you're going to be spending parts of your summer 
teaching girls in Uganda how to make reusable menstrual pads, I would have said, but no, I want to study chimpanzees. And so I think to get back to your original question, I think one of the things that I love about my job is that by even though I am a primatologist and that's always been my real core interest, the job that I have has allowed me to kind of have these like, you know, maybe you'd call them extracurricular activities or it's it's at least given me these opportunities to explore this larger world that's all kind of adjacent to what I do, but is so fulfilling in ways that, you know, pure research can sometimes be very lonely and not fulfilling, right? There are a lot of days, especially this week, which has been kind of a politically crazy week here in the U.S., there are a lot of days when you just sit there and think, who cares what chimps do, right? In the grand scheme of things, does it matter? You know, does does this really matter? You know, some days you can feel like that. And, and then you, and then actually I go and give a talk to elementary school kids or I teach a five-year-old how to ant hoot like a chimp. And you remember <laughs> that you actually have the coolest job in the world right. and that studying chimps is so compelling to most people, right? People are so interested in chimps and they're such an incredible vehicle to get people interested in science and interested in thinking beyond their little place where they are, you know, that they, we can use chimps to get people to think just beyond themselves. And I love, I love it. I can tell. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for teaching my son those sounds. That's awesome. <laughs> and and it's great, you know, just you being able to, and I said this before, but just being able to work in something you're so passionate about. But not only that, just the flexibility and like you said, the opportunities, it's it's open and for you to do other things as well. That That's awesome. And you mentioned teaching. You can tell that you love teaching. You can tell that you are a good teacher just by our conversations here and uh, conversations I've heard uh, of yours prior where you just, you make these really complex theories sound so easy. And I will say, I think part of that has to do with chimps, right? Like people can really, understand you know I mean when I say things like yeah you know as they get older they you know start to just focus on the individuals that reciprocate Mm -hmm. we have this kind of internal sense of what that means right because we're so closely related so I think it is I I mean thank you very much I love (laughs) I'd love to think I'm a good teacher but I think chimps and primates make it really easy in some ways to to teach that material it might, but I think you're being modest too. I think, you know, talking about socio-emotional selective theory and this theory and that theory, I mean, you make it sound very easy. Well, so, yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. So now on the flip side, what type of challenges are out there for you or what obstacles? And also while you talk about that, can you also talk about where we are on conserving the species? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll start with that. So, I mean, and in the sense that that is actually quite big challenge is that it can right. be really demoralizing to study an endangered species because it's really hard to know if you're having an impact, right? I mean, is the work we do having an impact? I'd like to think so, but we're still losing chimps, right? I think there are some species, primate species, that we should be more worried about than chimps. I'm much more worried about orangutans than I am about chimps in terms of like how long they're going to be left on the planet. I think chimps are doing 
relatively okay compared to the other great apes, but it is demoralizing. Every time you go back, I go back to Kibali National Park, it seems a little bit smaller on the edges. So, I mean, we've probably done something to slow down the loss, but it's not, it's not growing. Oh. Um, so that, that can be very difficult. And so I think you do, you know, I am an optimist. I'm like a glass three quarters full kind of person. So I think that helps because there are bad days yeah. with, with the conservation. I think the other challenges with the job are, you know, I think being a woman in science is challenging. I think being a woman of color in science is challenging. There are not that many brown people in my field. Um, and there aren't that many brown women in my field. Um, and I, I try not to let that, bother, you know, I mean, I just do my work and I try to mentor as many students that want to do this, no matter what they look like or where they come from. But it's sometimes hard to look around and realize, oh, no one else looks like me. Okay, I, I guess I'll just be that person. I think going back to being a woman in science, you know, because of the nature of the job and it required a lot of time in the field and going to Uganda back and forth many, many years, I certainly found it difficult, uh, you know, thinking about when it I wanted to start a family. I always knew I wanted to have kids and start a family, but there just wasn't the right time because I was always going to Uganda. I'm like, I didn't want to be pregnant in Uganda. And one day I just had to say, well, it's never going to be the right time. So you just have to make it happen now. And now I have two wonderful, delightful babies who drive me nuts. <laughs> um, but, you know, I am much older than I wanted to be when I had kids, you know, so I think that was difficult and challenging. And it's still challenging, because you know, I think the job is also very busy. Like I talked about the flexibility and the schedule. You know, so there's no one, no one telling you that you have to work nine to five, but there's also no one telling you that you can't work 80 hour weeks, right. you know, that that's not sustainable. And there are lots of weeks that I work 80 hour weeks. There are lots of, lots of days where I'm up at 3am prepping a lecture for the next day. And I, I, you know, I think that flexibility has this negative flip side, which is there's no one telling you that you don't get paid overtime. So stop working. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know how much know about like academia and like this tenure versus pre-tenure, but like there is, you know, for our professors, this process that we have to go through called tenure, which is when you kind of have like a more, more stable job, right? So tenured professors have this stability that those of us who don't have tenure are really nervous about. And before we get that road to getting tenure is really hard. You know, it is a lot and, and there's a lot of stress, right? There's, it's a lot of stress. I, I, I can't really you know, we just don't, I don't know I'm going to have a job in Boston in long term because I don't have tenure yet. They have like one year contracts or three year contracts or things. That no. So basically, once you start like a professorship job, yeah. you basically have kind of five to seven years, like a okay. basically a five to seven year contract. I okay. mean, you it's not, it's not, you don't sign it for five years, but that's essentially what you have. You have five to seven years to prove that you you have what it takes and you are productive and interesting and a great person and all sorts of things. And after that point, you may or may you get tenure and that will give you that stability or you may not. And you may have to leave academia or you may have to move halfway across the world to a new job. Mm. 
and there aren't that many jobs as I, I think is like my mother likes to say, there aren't that many jobs for monkey doctors in the world. <laughs> so, you know, it, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of luck in this kind of profession. You could be the most amazing researcher person in the universe and universities might not be hiring that year that you need a job, you know, and what are you going to do? You need, you need a job. Right. So there, there is a certain amount of luck and uncertainty to this kind of job that does not suit some people's personalities. Right. right. Like, and I'm okay with it, but I've been very lucky. Yeah. Well, when you say lucky, you prepared yourself though. And when those moments came, you were able to take advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's that's true, but I don't want to discount that there have been just like right place, right, right time kind right. of moments. I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm not saying I didn't work hard or all of those <laughs> things, but like I, I, I certainly think there there is a a, a luck component to it. So. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. All right, now, do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out to you? Been all over uh, the world and done so many exciting things. I mean, there, yeah, there are lots. <laughs> um, again, I mean, I probably should have thought about this before we started our call. Absolutely. The first time I saw Chimps in the Wild was a, that actual day was both the best and the worst day really? of my career because, you know, I, I, I built it up so much in my head and seeing them in the wild was like, breathtaking i mean i just I, I remember i was i saw the first chimp i ever saw in the wild was auntie rose she's since passed away she was sitting up in a tree feeding and i like there was um it was morning, so there was kind of this backlit right because the sun was coming up and so it almost looked like she had a halo around her oh. which is kind of very profound for me because it was you know my first chimp yeah but i was not i think physically ready for how intense it was going to be. And I think that our field assistants were playing a little trick on the new person and they took us on probably the hardest trail, physically hardest trail. And I remember, I I just thought I was going to die. Like I just thought it was so physically hard. I thought I was going to die. And coming home, we were hiking back in the dark. And I remember I tripped and I rolled down this hill and I just landed oh, there gosh. and I burst into tears. And I remember saying, just leave me. Oh, geez. I'm getting my body in the morning. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I, you know, I was physically spent. And so best and worst day. But, you know, there are just so many, like, comical moments in the forest and the camaraderie that you build with your team being so isolated and so far away from home and you know one of my favorite memories is actually my first christmas in uganda and like at our at at the field site and i had somehow i don't even know how but i'd found like a fake can of snow in you know like one of those like spray snow things and and hours cutting out snowflakes and making a Christmas tree out of different trees I found in the forest. And someone told me that I could find a turkey in Uganda somewhere. And so I like drove for hours looking for this turkey <laughs> farm. 
And then I got a turkey, but didn't realize that when you buy a turkey in Uganda, you buy a whole turkey that's still alive. And so they just like put it in the back seat of the car that oh, I was wow. driving. <laughs> I was like, anyway. So, I mean, we just, you know, they're just, there are moments like that. A lot of them are about the chimps and the things, that, you know, the first time you see something, those are pretty amazing moments. But a lot of the memories I have, a lot of them also just revolve around the people and the camaraderie that you, you build and these deep friendships where people really, I mean, you really depend on people in that kind of situation. Yeah, that is awesome. That is great. Very cool gig. Very cool uh, job yeah. that you have. So we're at the end of this interview. Okay. Um, we're going to head to this quick hitter session where I'm going to ask you questions for fun to get to know sure. you a little bit better. But before we do that, though, I just want to see if you have anything additional that you would like to talk about or if you feel like I might have left off something asking you. No, I w well, the one thing that I would say, since I think you're also trying to reach out to encourage people to think more broadly about life and jobs and, and everything is I loved doing a PhD. I really loved it. It was a, the right choice for me. I think there are a lot of students who do a PhD who decide that they don't want to end up doing like a professorship or research. And I would just like to say that I think doing a PhD is, is not just about becoming a professor, that there are lots of things that you can do with a PhD. You know, it is an incredible skill set that you have. Like if I think about, like, I'm kind of joking about the monkey doctor thing, but like there were a lot of times when I was doing my PhD where I was getting depressed and thinking like, what am I going to do with this degree if I don't get a job? And like, I'm qualified to study monkeys. Like there, there are not private corporations that need someone who has that knowledge. But there are private corporations that need people who have my skill set. And if you think about what a PhD does, or any kind of graduate degree, like a master's degree or a PhD, you have, like, especially in science, you have these incredible problem solving skills, but also incredible quantitative skills, data analysis kind of skills. And so not to get too discouraged about like, am I ever going to get a job in this, but to really focus also on like the skills that you're building. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was just talking to someone about that, that just caring a little bit less about what's hot or thinking too much about what to get into and just do what you're passionate about and, and things will open up for you. Yes. And also just stay open-minded. Like mm -hmm. if you go into graduate school thinking the only job I can possibly get or want or think, you know, is awesome as being a professor, you're going to miss out right? I mean, if I had kept veterinarian blinders on from the age of four, I'd be a veterinarian right. and I'd miss out on my awesome job. Yep. 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 And now, uh, what was your thesis? My PhD thesis? Yes. Or my under, or my undergraduate thesis? Uh, uh, sorry, PhD thesis. <laughs> okay. It was on male-female relationships in wild chimpanzees. So, okay. you know, really thinking about what are the kinds of bonds or social interactions between the sexes as opposed to within the sex. Got you. Okay. Um, but if you did want to know, my undergraduate yeah. thesis was on unicellular algae. So it had nothing to wow. do with chimpanzees at all. Unicellular algae. Okay. Yeah. Which are actually really fascinating. All right. <laughs> Look that up or it might be another podcast episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So let's go to these quick hitter questions. Sure. First one, what's your favorite sports team? Oh, 
this is so easy. I am a diehard <laughs> Montreal Canadiens fan. Okay. Yeah, I'm Canadian. So. Yep. Yep. All right. And did you did you play at all? Did you play mm-hmm. any hockey? Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I'm Canadian. Like, yep. Right. So like, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. <laughs> like yeah. in Texas, had to play football. So. Yeah. All right. Favorite movie or show? Uh, okay. So my favorite movie of all time, I am a sucker for underdog sports movies, like, mm. like tears streaming down my face. So <laughs> favorite movie is remember the Titans. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it still makes me cry. I've seen it 800 times. I still cry. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> what about favorite musical artist or group? Um, you know, I don't listen to that much music anymore. I would say historically it was probably Bell and Sebastian, which is this like kind of indie Scottish band. Okay. Very, very precious music. Indie and Sebastian. Oh, Bell and Sebastian. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Bell and oh, Sebastian. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to check that out. All right. Favorite vacation spot? Uh, Galapagos wow. Islands. Yeah. It's my, I mean, I do a lot. Of, I mean, I do a lot of traveling and I, I think that's just been, I mean, as a biologist, it's a phenomenal place to visit. It's also very kid friendly if you're ever thinking about really? it. Mm-hmm. All right. That'll be on the list. And favorite food or drink? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm Canadian. I really love donuts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really like more than I should, but I really love donuts. Any particular donuts? Um, the maple glazed donut from okay. Tim Hortons. Like, I don't get to go home very often, but that is like my number one donut. Yeah, it's what all I right. dream about. It I dream about. Yeah. Well, maple. That so makes I'm sense. like I like all the stereotypes, all the Canadian <laughs> right. stereotypes. I just exhibit it. <laughs> well, hey, so I mean, this has been great. I learned a lot from this. Oh, it's been uh, so good. So interesting to, to hear what you do and how you got into this and just all you're able to do. And I love like the outreach programs that you do. You're working with new kids, students in Uganda. Earlier, we talked about the Bronx mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere, the mentoring that you do. Love it so much. Congrats all you do. Thanks so Thanks. much. Keep doing what you're doing too. Yeah, you're welcome. I'll try as long as I don't fall over. Okay. <laughs> My students actually will often laugh because they'll get emails from me at three in the morning telling them not to work too hard. <laughs> you know. At two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and do they come back and tell you the same thing? Yeah, they'll be like, why were you up that right, late? I'm right. like, uh, don't ask. I'm just, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Right. <laughs> And also, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That was a fun conversation. All right. Well, now, can you talk about how people can learn more about what you do? I know there's a uh, website and and you're on Twitter as well. Yep. I'm on Twitter and our um, Kibali chimpanzees are on Twitter as well. And then our website is kibalichimpanzees.wordpress.org. And we post updates from the field uh, all the time. and we love having followers. We actually have little, we have little kind of competitions on Facebook and Twitter with the other chimpanzee research groups to who has, okay. about who has the most followers. So, <laughs> follow okay. us. I will follow you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, 
or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.